Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. In every episode, we're going to be turning back the clock and looking at some of the worst murder cases in history. In this episode, we're looking into the woman that fooled the nation. It's Tracy Andrews. Danny, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. What have you been up to? Not much. Bit of a rush to get here. Um, I'm not wearing any pants. And I feel like uh, just now everybody knows. <laughs> We're all in it together now. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's my fault. I always thought I'll organise my day well and I'm going to go to the gym first and then come here and do this. And I packed two bras and no pants. So I'm only wearing one bra which is nice, but no pants. And now you have to live with that. And I was in your house with no pants. I mean, I wouldn't have been any wiser if you hadn't told me, so. Well, problem shared. Problem halved, yeah. Exactly. I've started plane watching. Like, I've got this app on my phone where I can um, watch where planes are going. Flight tracker, it's called. It's great fun. So you've actually got us all accidentally plane watching is what's happened here, isn't it? Yeah, it has. And... Because it's not necessarily, we can all see the same planes and that is mad. Yeah, and by we can all see the same planes, we mean that when I'm looking at the sky from my park or at my garden and Danny's 25 minutes away in her garden, we're looking up at the sky and we can see the same plane. The same plane? The same plane. And I don't. And it's not even anywhere near us, it's over the North Sea or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and then I can tell you where it's been. Mexico City to Luxembourg, that one. <laughs> the one the one that we saw when we pulled up today. That had been to East Midlands Airport, but it didn't tell me where it was going. Classified information. Oh my God, mystery. I know. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's kind of creepy, but it is also really cool. Yeah. You know when it's like, oh, if you look at the moon and I'm looking at the moon, we'll be together, but with planes. Can you see that Boeing 747? Yes. I can too. <laughs> That's going to Lanzarote. <laughs> Always a 747 as well. Yeah, it's the only plane I know I need to learn. I need to get on my plane terminology. 777? I think that might be the double-decker. We get off topic. Yeah. What are we here for? We are talking about Tracy Andrews today. So, let's dive in. Are you ready? Never. Uh, you're no- Why are you here? Never ready. <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> It's early December 1996. I would have been five. I was six. We would have been too young to know what was going on because this apparently was all over the news. Oh. I was watching Tots TV or something. Hey, my touch is easy, totally dumb and tiny. We're the Tots of Tots TV. One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> Police in Alv Church in the West Midlands are roping up a small section of the road outside a house. And it's a country road, so there's not a lot around there. There's just this one large house and, you know, they're putting up their police tape. They're combing the area to see if they can find anything that might help them solve the murder of 25-year-old Lee Harvey. Lee was a bus driver who was also a single dad and he'd been stabbed to death on the side of the road. The main witness, Harvey's fiancée, says he was killed by a stranger in a road raid incident following their trip to the pub. I saw the man hit me. I don't know what with. I didn't see anything. However, the physical evidence and other witnesses' statements don't match her story. There certainly wasn't any car chasing that car in the vicinity of Cooper's Hill. The woman had held a press conference only days before, pleading for the killer to come forward, but now some of the story and evidence wasn't matching up. The forensic scientist who had examined one of Tracy's uh, zip-up boots, she had a pair of ankle boots on, and within that he'd found a mark in the leather which had a rounded top on it uh, and seemed to bear all the impression of the outside shape of the knife. Her story was starting to fall apart. 
there'd been no car chase, there was no stranger. Tracy had in fact stabbed her own fiance to death and was now trying to get away with it. You can get behind the wheel of the car. Yeah, sometimes you change personality. I feel a bit annoyed already because during that first voice clip, and I just I didn't see much. I genuinely felt really sad. Like, oh, she sounds devastated. Okay, so she's lying, mm -hmm. is she? As we do, let's go back to the start. Tracy was born April 9th, 1969 in the West Midlands. She was a middle child in the family of a few siblings. And like me, her parents split up when she was about six years old. Why did I go quiet then? <laughs> had a just, let's just take had a, a second. Moment, had a moment to reflect on my past. <laughs> let's just take a second to mourn <laughs> Helen, Helen's broken childhood. <laughs> I was busy being like, you lucky, you lucky bitches. My parents didn't even make it to six. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Ooh, oh, they broke up when I was six. <laughs> I think I was four. All right. It's not a game. It's not like who had the worst time, Danny. Yeah, but if it was a competition, I just won. Her parents had quite an argumentative, volatile relationship. Um, so I think it's fair enough to say, you know, the separation of parents at such a young age might have had an effect on young Tracy. Uh, I know from my own experiences and speaking to my therapist... TMI, <laughs> uh, that when when you're young and going through essentially family trauma, uncertainty and inconsistency, it makes you vulnerable and craving attention, like, like the nurturing. You don't have like a solid family unit around you creating like this roof security blanket above your head. So it kind of... That dysfunctionality, is that the right word? Is that a word? That is a word. Oh, great, real. That that dysfunctionality can give you craving attention and seeking nurturing. So it's easy to see why she craved attention, and especially in this case, from men, Tracy, as she grew up. I was, I was told by my therapist that's why I've had a lot of boyfriends, because I crave a nurturing, consistency. What? What are you looking at me that for? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. It makes a lot of sense. Though. That that's makes sense for you. Yeah. I'm just like, it does all just sound like a bit of an excuse, though, because I'm not being funny. Like, it did get to the point where in that sort of 1996, everybody was getting a fucking divorce. And how many people grew up to be, like, stabby? Yeah, I know. I know. But uh, then, obviously, in this case, it's a bit different because she turned into a stabby person. But I do think, generally speaking... You can crave attention or need that nurture if it's not a constant in your life. Like To be fair, we do always joke about our, our need for stability. Yeah, isn't it? That's yeah. what I mean. And you think, where's that stemmed from? It stemmed from the fact that there's no consistency in your childhood. And like when your parents split up and then parents get girlfriends and boyfriends and they remarry and you're just a bit like, what the hell's going on? Do you know what I'm? You know what I mean? You're just making me question my whole entire existence. It's fine. Also, sorry, Mum, you did a great job. If, when you do listen to this, all oh, fine. <laughs> Everybody's fine. Savage Sue, Helen's mum, great job. Yeah, know, I'm fine. fine now. Cheers. I'm okay. Um, and also, we haven't stabbed anyone. Yeah, we haven't stabbed anyone, so, so it's okay. You know, good job. Good job. So, Tracy found herself in her first serious relationship when she was 17. They stayed together for four years and then they had a baby together. Um, but a year after the baby was born, they broke up. She actually walked out. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, we love old Lizzie. Liz! Knows exactly what she was like back then. Liz knows everyone. She does. What we've got here is a woman who doesn't like her partners having a life that doesn't involve her. She doesn't like her partners going out without her. She gets very jealous. She's very possessive. She was a beautiful woman. She actually, she she had beautiful, flowy, blonde hair. You know, like, I'm thinking Saved by the Bell, sort of 90s, wishy swishy mm -hmm. hair. Mm -hmm. Think You know, think Kelly, but blonde. Oh, wow. You know, big blue eyes. 
She always had a full face of makeup. She, you know, made herself look nice all the time. And she did have aspirations of being a model. And I don't really blame her because she was genuinely, like, stunning. And she did have a go at doing modelling at a local salon, but it didn't go any further than that. I think, you know, it's the days before Instagram and Facebook, so networking wasn't that easy. So she just ended up working in a bar, which gave her a lot of opportunity to be noticed. She's behind the bar, she's pulling the pint, she's got beautiful hair, talking to a load of guys, getting a lot of attention. She became a barmaid working in a pub, but she still dressed very provocatively and she still uh, loved talking to men and, and chatting to men. Again, seeking the attention that she wanted to get as a model, because obviously when you're that pretty and, and you're a model, you, all, you do get a lot of attention. Sort of like an ideal place really for her to work then, isn't it? Living nearby was 23-year-old Lee Harvey. Along came Lee, along came Lee. Lee was a handsome man with a round face. Large brown eyes and dark curly hair. And like Tracy, he had a young daughter from a previous relationship. He was a bus driver. He was outgoing. He loved talking to people. I love a friendly bus driver. And he was super close to his family and friends. He was just an all-round, just lovely man. Sounds handsome. Lovely Lee, the bus driver lovely. with the round face. <laughs> <laughs> of all the things to describe somebody. Round. Lovely round face. Yeah, but it kind of sets you the image of him being joyful and jolly and round and lovely. <laughs> Doesn't it? Stop calling him round. Sorry. They met in a nightclub in Birmingham and from, from the get-go they were head over heels for one another. So it does sound like the beginning of the most idyllic love story, doesn't it? Yeah. Here's Liz. They had moved in with one another only around three months into the relationship. So, so this was going very, very fast. For being young single parents wasn't the only thing that they had in common. It seems their passion for each other went both ways. And their relationship was quite a volatile one. Um, they were both quite, quite possessive, quite jealous um, when it came to the other's uh, relationships with the opposite sex. And you often find this in relationships that develop very quickly. You haven't got that foundation of trust that's been built. You're always a little bit kind of suspicious as to what the other person's up to because you don't really know them. Journalist Rod Chater says their relationship was well known to their neighbours and not not in a good way. And they would row and they would fight like cat and dog and neighbours would report how voices would be raised at all hours of the day and night and would go on and on for hours and then stop and then start again. Oh, you'd be so annoyed if you lived next door to that. Did no one call the police on them? Just be like, there's some serious issues going on with this relationship. Police won't do anything until there's actual harm. No, I know. Goes to show they're just a very passionate... Yeah, I guess like, so. You have to be quite emotionally volatile, for want of a better word. Cheers, Liz. Cheers, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose if you're, like, super in love and you're really passionate, like, you can get fiery, can't you? Like... You just more your your emotions are higher, aren't they? Some people are shouty people, and some people are quiet people who then explode. And I think the shouty people just get it out, and then it's out there. Mm. But they're the people that you don't want to live next door to. Must mm, true. So six months later, they get engaged. Of course, of course they do. They continue to be rocky, and they continue to break up, make up, break up, over and over and over again. Just sounds pretty toxic. This is familiar for Tracy, though, says former psychologist Chris Carter and Jeffrey Wansel. Jeff! I'm always happy to hear from Jeff. It was a may, maybe almost a, a, a carbon copy of what Tracy grew up with in her house. She had a very explosive temper, and um, Lee Harvey also, in a way, didn't wouldn't like just bow down to her screaming, so he would scream back. She was forever throwing him out into the street and she would throw his clothes out of the window or in a black bin bag and chuck him out the front door, change the locks. And then they would have reconciliations. Lee would go back, more violence, Lee would leave, Lee would go back, more violence. This went on for a period of about two years. 
just sounds like such a vicious, exhausting relationship, doesn't mm, it? Very tiring. The constant fighting, though, did come to its head in December 1996. So they'd been rowing all day. Lee tended to be the peacemaker, and it was probably Lee's suggestion, why don't we go for a drink? Why don't we just get a change of scene, a breath of fresh air, let's get out of here, let's just go and, you know, relax and have a drink. And, And that's what they did. So they went to the local pub to try and calm down and make up, and I see the intent behind that, but I'd, I'd probably suggest going for a nice stroll. Yeah, adding alcohol to an already vi- uh, volatile situation, it's not the best idea, is it? Stop saying that word. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's just such an appropriate word. Okay. This suggestion for the pub from Lee was the last one he'd ever make. Tracy claimed that after they'd left the pub and that Lee was driving, that they'd become involved in a, in a road rage incident, um, essentially, that a man in a dark Ford Sierra, there'd been some kind of altercation, and he'd started following them. So Lee's car has pulled over onto the side of the road outside a housing complex called Keeper's Cottage, and there's a loud commotion in the road. So one of the residents goes out, walks down the path in his slippers to see what's going on and he sees Tracy with her back to the car and then he sees lovely Lee laying on the floor motionless, covered in blood. As you would, runs straight back to the house and calls the emergency services. It's obvious he'd been the victim of an attack. Lee had been stabbed 42 times with a penknife. He was stabbed everywhere, throat, back, front, over and over again. And 42 times is a lot. That's a lot of... (laughs) That's so much times. So many stabs. Yeah. And probably quite hard to do. You either... I mean, it's not... That's not quick. Even if you're really fast at stabbing, to stab 42 times is going to take some time, isn't it? Yeah. And also some some force, some strength. That's... I don't think a regular person could stab someone 42 times without a lot of adrenaline in their body. Mm -hmm. Anger. That's something... A driving force behind that. Yeah. Forensic pathologist Dr Stuart Hamilton describes just how much that would take. To produce 42 stab wounds... It's a sustained assault. It's 42 movements of your hand. This is not something that you can do in a second or two seconds in a moment of madness. You have to keep going, and it is not easy. In Lee Harvey's case, the fatal stab wound was a stab wound to the crossed artery. That is, a large artery in the neck, and a stab wound to an artery of that size is going to cause very rapid, very heavy bleeding, Without prompt medical attention, it's most likely to be a fatal injury. Lee died at the scene. The attack had become a murder and the case was immediately given to Detective Superintendent Ian Johnston. I received a call from West Mercy Constabulary Operations Room, which directed me to the scene at Cooper's Hill. Present at that time was uh, Lee's car, Lee's body, and Tracy Andrews was inside Keeper's Cottage having been found in the road outside. I could see Lee's vehicle. It was pulled in on the near side of the road, travelling towards Alf Church, and it didn't appear to have um, been stopped in any great hurry. It looked as though it had been fairly neatly parked to the side. Tracy explained to them that the two were driving back home from the pub when another car appeared behind them. Apparently, the car was like right up their arse, flashing the lights, and eventually it overtakes them and forces them to stop. Tracy then told detectives that a man got out the car looking really angry. Lee did the same, so a confrontation was inevitable. Oh, you'd be shitting your pants, really, wouldn't you, if you were in the passenger seat? Actually, a similar thing did happen to me once, back when I was with a BP. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was at, it was near um, Lakeside, you know. Shopping centre. Yeah, yeah, I was at a roundabout. And he, there was a a driver up our ass being impatient and slow. So BP 
put his brakes on thinking he was funny and hilarious. And, and then this other driver just pulls out, goes round, stops the car on a roundabout and gets out. And I'm like, you're a dead man. Did the ex get out of the car as well? No. The, the, of the, course he didn't. No, of course he didn't. It it's was, frightening. It was scary for me. I was like, what the hell? Go- yeah. Why did you have to do that? Equally, though, don't be ragey and react like that. Yeah, it does happen though. The road rage does happen, so it's a viable story. Yeah, it's believable. It's a believable story. Apart from if you've parked neatly. Yes, exactly. But Rod here has got some more to add to the convo. The driver then has said what he wants to say, apparently. He gets back in the car. Lee is still outside his car. And then the passenger gets out. What she's basically saying is the two drivers have their altercation. The driver of the other car gets back in. You think it's all going to be over and done with, but then the passenger of the angry car gets out. She described this passenger, the second man, as a fat man with staring eyes. And that's where it all goes downhill. Then she piles in, she says, to go to Lee's defence because she says she's not the kind of girl to just sit there and see her, her man being attacked. At which point she gets smacked by the fat man in the eyes and repeatedly gets up and is knocked out. And then she says it all gets a bit hazy from that point and then she kind of comes to almost and... Uh, and Lee's there and he's covered in blood and she's cradling him and uh, it all goes very vague. So with her initial statement taken, a bruised and bloody Tracy is whisked away in an ambulance. I suppose at the time, her being shaken and bloody and beaten, it probably looks like that was the case, like it could have happened. They came under attack whilst they were on their way home. But equally... At the time, police were thinking, and I kind of also think this too, what on earth would have instigated so much road rage? There's one thing getting pissed off because you're not merging properly and banging on your window, but to actually kill someone... For road rage is a bit extreme. Isn't it? Yeah, like maybe a broken window or a yeah. punch in the face, but 42 stab wounds, a bit much. And uh, she's treated for those injuries and for shock in hospital and cared for and tended for while police launch a massive murder hunt for whoever has done this, this terrible thing to Lee. Tracy had told us that the following vehicle, which had... Uh, followed them from the Marlbrook, was a dark-coloured Ford Sierra, F-registered, and obviously we started a, a vehicle inquiry with the DVLA for the uh, owner details of any vehicle that might fit that description. Reports of the apparent road rage, it hit the media and the journalists, so Rod Chater immediately headed to the West Midlands. From... The very first moment, it was clear that this was going to be a huge story, an absolutely huge story. Just the idea of of a road rage murder made it already a big story. Um, And as the first morning progressed, everything we discovered made it a bigger story. Photographs began to emerge of Tracy. She looked an attractive young woman. Photographs began to emerge of Lee, the victim. Handsome young man. And so... More and more of the elements that make a big story young, attractive, bizarre, unimaginable circumstances all started slotting into into place. You can kind of see it on the headlines as well, can't you? That two gorgeous people involved in this terrible incident, road rage, mystery duo out on the road, killing people. That is an episode of CSI that I would watch. I'd watch them all, but, mm. you know, I would be intrigued by that one. No one is safe on the country roads. Don't look them in the eye. Imagine turn. Or regret it. <laughs> bow, bow. <laughs> Things became even more bizarre when Andrew spoke at a press conference two days later and her story began to change. I met Tracy somewhere around about 10am, I believe, just before we were going to do the press conference. I asked her if she was content to do the press conference, if it was something that she wanted to do. 
She said that she was. She said she really wanted to do it. She was essentially doing a press conference to try to appeal to find the so-called killers. And as the press conference began, journalist Rod Chater says all the focus was on the 27-year-old. He probably loved it. This hugely hiked up the media interest because we were going to have put in front of us, it was said, the key witness and someone, we'd all seen the pictures by this time, an attractive blonde, and she was going to sit there in front of us and answer our questions. There was massive media interest in this. The sound of the cameras going off as Tracy entered the room was almost deafening. There was loads of people on her, looking at her. And they'd seen her press shots from the modelling days, so they were expecting like this beautiful blonde with big, beautiful hair and big blue eyes. But the woman that appeared in front of them was, however, somewhat different. She was haggard. She had two black eyes, no makeup. She had a cut across her nose. She looked like a victim. She didn't look okay. In fact, she was like a wolf in sheep's clothing, one would say. Oh, one would say. One would say. But she seemed pretty comfortable in front of all the cameras, though. And she did answer all the questions pretty effortlessly from the journalists. Both me and the other person were like playing cat and mouse with each other for a while. Um, and they overtook us. I was shouting at me to, you know, slow down, just ignore them, stop the cobby. I don't know. I don't know if a lot of men are like it, and a lot of women are like it. But, um, when you get behind the wheel of a car, you know, sometimes you change personality. During the press conference, when talking about the alleged killer, uh, there was a moment when suddenly her eyes came up and she was mostly downcast throughout the press conference, but her eyes came up and they flashed fiercely and her mouth dropped open a bit with that famous slightly jutting draw and she looked really angry. And at that point again, all the motor drives went off. Every press photographer reacted to that. It was a crash of noise as every camera was, was, was hit. It was just the way he looked. His, his eyes were <laughs> starey eyes. Um, it just didn't seem normal. I saw the man hit me. I don't know what with. I didn't see anything. And suddenly she starts appealing to the driver of the car, saying, you're not in any trouble, you know, come forward and tell the police what it's all about. Um, whoever this person is that was with you, you obviously know him. But he's ruined my life. Please, just tell us who he is, because you won't get in any trouble at all. It was not your fault. We will be getting in trouble. Do you get in trouble for driving a murderer around? Well, was, oh, wait, yeah, we know that already. He was driving like an a-hole and then fled the, the scene. Reckless endangerment. What we else are we looking at? Per, a perversion of the course of justice. Yeah. Um, failure to stop at the scene of a crime. Mm-hmm. Or, or what? A vehicle accident. You're good know. at this, aren't you? I watch a lot of... Crime shows. <laughs> if it's either about doctors, firemen, or like crime scene investigators, that's it. Or or erotic programs. No, I just I just read those. Oh yeah, you read those. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for outing me. I'm not wearing any pants and I read erotic novels. Oh, please let me come. Please let me come back. Right. So Tracy started the conference confidently, but as the questioning progressed, she seemed to con- contradict her original statement. She she didn't have her story down. She didn't have it cemented into her brain. I said, Tracy, sorry, but I, I, I clearly understood the police to say that it was about ten past ten when you left the pub. And she kind of looked at me, sort of head down under her lashes, and said, No, it was ten to ten, and sat on her left was Superintendent Johnston. And I just saw him react to that answer from Tracy. And very slowly, his head turned to the right. And he just looked at her in a kind of 
assessing way, a kind of appraising way. And at that moment, I thought, wow, there's something going on here. So essentially, Tracy claimed that they left the pub around 9.45, but the call to 999 hadn't come in for another hour, so 10.45. So some things weren't adding up here. So the moment of confusion in Tracy's otherwise straightforward testimony surprised the majority of reporters in the room. Now, I'm feeling a lot of things in common with Tracy because, to be honest, I always get confused with times. 10.2, 10 past. It's all the same, isn't it? That's why you say ish. She should have just said 10-ish. Yeah, I, I don't know, though, because I think in circumstances like that, you really fixate, in traumatic circumstances like that, you do fixate on sort of like little things like that. You'd make a, you'd make it, when it's really important, mm. you make a note. You make, like, you if it's really important, you would make sure to remember correctly. And I think the only time that that really would change is if you're trying so hard to lie, in it. But I, but I'm, what I mean to say is like I wouldn't have known what time I left the pub because I probably Cause, wouldn't even been looking. Because you'd have been so fucked. <laughs> no. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have paid any attention because I probably would have said to Phil, like, it's half nine, let's go home. And then he would have bumped into someone that he met and he'd be chatting to them for 20 minutes about a job or something. And then it, before you know it, you're like, okay, now I'm leaving, but I don't know what time it is now. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's I know, what I, mean. I see what you mean. Yeah, and I guess... Well, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I got a text from someone probably about, like, just as we hit the door or, like, I got, you know, a message, I was messaging the flanges about planes. Yeah, um, maybe now, but I'm talking, like, 90s. You wouldn't have oh, had, yeah. You wouldn't have a reference point. You wouldn't have a, you wouldn't have your phone. Wouldn't... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. It would have to be a, a oh, my, whoa. Well, I just really need to reassess this whole situation for a minute. Yeah, shut your mouth, Danny. I take it all back. The press conference finished uh, and the national newspaper journalists gathered outside in a bit of a pack, uh, as as we would tend to do, all friends all know each other, work against each other, and somebody said, what do you think? And I said, I think she did it. And we all kind of looked at each other and thought, this, you know, this enormous story just got ten times bigger again if, if, she, if she is the killer. As the police began to search the road and surrounding area for evidence, what they found suggested that there was no road rage incident at all. Tracy went from being the only witness to the only suspect. Tracy claimed that she and Lee had been the victim of a road rage incident. But she was no longer the only witness. It's unravelling now. So someone that lived in the house that they were in front of, because it was like a residency, it was a housing complex, they overheard an argument on the street. Very obvious man and woman having a barmy. That also ties into what the forensics had to say. We couldn't get anywhere near the scene on the first morning, or indeed for a, a, a few days afterwards. The police completely sealed it off while they drafted in officers to carry out a fingertip search of the area. What they found, we later discovered, were a couple of bits and pieces, including a tiny spring and another element from a multifunction uh, penknife. What police didn't find uh, was any trace of a car overtaking another car on the soft, December winter verges of this pretty narrow road. Police had also found a black beanie hat in the hedge next to where Lee's car had been parked. Detective Superintendent Ian Johnston thought it might have belonged to the killer and sent it for a DNA review. His suspicions were correct. So her assumption was, well, this has maybe fallen out of the uh, assailant's pocket and he's not realised it. We have the report back by the Wednesday that this was animal hair and it was cat hair, black and white cat hair. Well, there's a black and white cat at Tracy's. And so we went down and took a sample of hair from the cat and it was the cat hair. And then, as I understand it later on, it was accepted that this was Lee's hat but had been in Tracy's pocket prior to the uh, offence taking place. 
the hat was just one of the things that pointed towards Tracy because when the pathologist's report came back from Lee's body, they had found he had grabbed a chunk of her hair and it was still clutched in his hand. Oh, my God. I love this. Like, not in, like, I don't love that he's dead and I don't love that she stabbed him loads, but this episode just became a to-be-continued next time on CSI. (laughs) Like, this is a two-parter. In Lee's hand, they found between 80 and 100 strands of of Tracy's hair that have been pulled from Tracy's head as Lee has tried to defend himself. Now, if Lee had been murdered by this, this fat man with staring eyes, why would he have Tracy's hair in his hand? I'm just grabbing bits of my hair to sort of... That's a substantial amount of hair, yeah. isn't it? And that, for, to rip it out as well, that's oh, going to leave... That, I reckon that would draw blood, surely. Yeah, and he must have been in quite a... Cool. Like, a desperate yeah. position to just grab air and rip it out. Well, so would she if she was, like, maybe putting her head the opposite direction or whatever. Mm-hmm. He had her hair for her to... Oof. And continue... To do what she was doing. She, maybe she didn't even feel it. You might not have. She was just in a rage. Well, it must something dramatic must have switched in her to, to decide that she wanted him dead. Mm. Like, it's one thing that you're angry at your partner and you want them out of your house or get out of the car, fucking walk home, which I would have done. You can walk home. I've done that before. Took <laughs> <laughs> them out of the car. You can fucking walk home. See ya. I've done that a few times. I don't have issues, I swear. But to kill someone? <laughs> yeah, it's it's an, it's an extreme step, isn't it? It's an escalation. Yeah. And then after she realised what she'd done, she had to fabricate a story really quickly to cover up. It's self-preservation. That's what's driving her behaviour at this point in time. Um, she's got absolutely no empathy whatsoever for Lee or for Lee's family or indeed for her own family who are also going to be really badly affected by this. So she's thinking, how do I best preserve myself? I'm going to take that role of the victim and I'm going to put myself in it. Then detectives got their biggest piece of evidence. Two witnesses came forward thanks to the press conference they've seen on the telly, so they they called up and it didn't work in her favour. Not a lot is working in her favour right now. So they had seen Lee's car and Lee's car was a white Ford Escort and it was one of them, um, I'd say it was very distinctive. I saw a picture of it and it was, I'd call it a boy racer car and you think in 90s it's a boxy Ford, it's got like, like additions to it, it looks, yeah, it looks pretty boy racer and for any car enthusiast they'd probably think it was cool, if I showed Phil he'd be like, sick car and for people that are into their cars, they remember cars and so if you're driving down the road one night and you see a car that you like, you're not going to forget about it. Two witnesses who said we've seen it in the local paper. I know I've seen this white car, and he said it's a white Escort, G-Reg, spoked wheels, everything that it was. And he said that, you know, there is no doubt that was the car. He said, and from that point to when we got into Bromsgrove, we saw no car that fits any description of what you've been told, and there certainly wasn't any car chasing that car in the vicinity of Cooper's Hill. So we'd got the confirmation that we were looking for that the road rage incident had not occurred. And so that changed the way that we looked at the investigation. I think by this point, Tracy's... No, she's pretty fucked now. So she's either through through guilt or trying to avoid prison. Uh, She took matters into her own hands and the day after the press conference, she tried to overdose on pills. Tracy takes an overdose and I think this is a a very deliberate, a very determined act on her part. I think she was absolutely set on ending her own life because over the past few days, the situation has spiralled completely out of her control. She's trying to keep a story together. She's trying to present this face as the victim and it's all getting a bit too much because it's starting to unravel. So I think this is an attempt to take back control, to say, actually, I'm going to decide to do something now that I'm fully in control of, and and that's what this was. Her story really was starting to crumble at that point in time, and combined with her suicide attempt, I think the police decided that's enough evidence. We can now move in and arrest her. And so on Saturday, 
December 7th, 1996, six days after Lee's murder, Tracy Andrews was arrested in hospital with police guarding her bedside. Police then found further evidence to convict and it was the nail in the coffin. Forensics had tested Tracy's clothes from the night of the murder and they were covered in blood, which was consistent with her story, but they had found something else in one of her shoes. They had found the impression of a knife in the leather of one of her boots. The theory being is that she hid the knife in her boot, walked away with it and then chucked it at the next opportunity, away from the crime scene. So I think she hid it in a boot, she got in the ambulance, and then near the hospital she chucked it. She was then officially charged with murder of Lee Harvey on December 19th, 1996. Her trial was set for July and she was going to plead not guilty. And she was still sticking to her story that a stranger in a car had killed her fiancé. I don't know why. There's... Heaps of evidence to prove otherwise, but all right, Tracy. So they would have to prove that she was a liar or she could walk away free. So on July 1st, 1997, the trial of Tracy Andrews began. The media hype surrounding the trial was huge. Journalist Rod Chater was there. Uh, It was compelling, unmissable, and was being widely reported in all the media every day and every evening on all the TV news bulletins. The prosecution team, led by David Krigman, was confident that they had a strong case against Tracy. So they had two witness statements that contradicted her story, but it was actually the pattern of blood splatter on her jumper that was the key. She claimed it was from comforting him in the road, laying over, don't die, trying to hold it all together. However, the blood was sprayed on her front, and that would have been from an artery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, like, ca- so it came out like a fountain, like Kill Bill style. Yeah. Not nice. Dexter Morgan, our favourite serial killer, mm. fictional, mm-hmm. um, always says that the answer's in the blood. Yes. I don't think that's what he says word for word, but something along those lines. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton, which may I add... He's so cute. He's adorable. He explains the science. In a lot of cases of stabbing, particularly to the chest or the abdomen, a lot of the bleeding is internal because the large organs and blood vessels are deep within the body. The carotid artery is very close to the surface, so if it's breached, it will spray blood under pressure from the heart out of that wound, out into the air, and it will land on things next to it. In particular, in this case, Tracy Andrews, the assailant. It is like it is in the movies, essentially. I know they are exaggerated a lot of the time, but... It will spray... It will spray. On your face. Yeah. So the evidence was piling up against her, but Tracy had already proved to be extremely convincing when under intense scrutiny. Great actress and able to give a performance under pressure put that on your CV, but no matter how well she composed herself or how convincing she was, at the end of the day, this all stemmed down to the evidence and the other witnesses. So on Monday, July 14th, Tracy finally took the stand to give her testimony. Here's David Krigman. There was genuine apprehension in the prosecution camp that a jury may be persuaded by not only the story, but the skill, I would say, the skill with which she was able to advance what she had to say. And it went on and on and on. It went on for hours. It not only took the whole of that afternoon, it took the whole of the next day and into a third day. And in that time, the highly intellectual David Krigman just took her story apart. He just deconstructed it around her. She was left there effectively naked in the middle of her story in shreds on the floor. I came to the view that the only way you could dissect her story was piece by little piece by little piece, detail by detail. It was the accumulation of a large number of details where she could be shown not to be telling the truth that could break her down. It was only within the finest of detail as one 
mounted on top of the next that you began to see the story was a pack of lies. And she was, was reduced to standing there saying, I don't know, I can't remember, I don't know, I can't remember. And at every point, her credibility diminished. And at that point, I thought, okay, I think she's gonna get found guilty. The cracks are cracking. We're seeing right through you. The rust is rusting. That's terrible. That's a really bad one. All right. The rust is rusting. Well, at least I had something to offer. You didn't. <laughs> Just because you can, Helen, doesn't mean you should. Wait. <laughs> Tracy claimed her innocence until the bitter end. On July 29th, the jury reached a verdict. The judge came in, everyone stood up. Um, the foreman of the jury, will you please stand? Uh, do you have a verdict on which you are all agreed? Uh, yes, we do. What is that verdict? Guilty. She showed almost no emotion. She sh shook her head once like that, just as in no, or I don't agree, whatever. But that was the only reaction. She saw her family briefly before she was taken away. They were allowed brief access to her. At that point, she did break down in tears. At that time, she was completely tearful um, uh, and terrified about what was going to happen to her and what awaited her in prison from other inmates. In public, she had maintained her composure to the last, really. In private, um, she was terrified. And rightly so. I bet she wasn't expecting all of this to stem from an argument. No, especially if it was a crime of, I say a crime of passion, in a fit of rage. Mm. It's not premeditated. No. Although, why, why would you have a pen knife? I guess it's a pen knife and not a, like an actual big knife. Mm. Um, I'd be terrified if I found out I was going to prison. Mm. Absolutely, just really, really frightened. So Judge Mr Justice Broccoli sentenced Tracy Andrews to life in prison for the murder of Lee Harvey and she was ordered to serve a minimum of 14 years. Forensic psychologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley thinks she knows why Tracy did it. Well, when we asked the question, why do we think Tracy Andrews stabbed Lee Harvey? It was because she felt that Lee was hers. He was her possession. This wasn't a relationship that was about love. It was a relationship that was about control and ownership. And in ending somebody's life, you are completely possessing them. And that was what was going on on that evening when she chose to take Lee's life. On the day of the sentencing, journalist Rod Chater had a chance to interview her. And there was Tracy, uh, sat there, made up, composed, sat at a table, her lawyers, and I sat down and, and interviewed her. It was absolutely bizarre. Never in 35 years on Fleet Street, never did it before, never did it again, interview the accused while the jury's out. Extraordinary. So I started to ask her questions. The basic message that she was giving was, uh, I didn't do it. I'm innocent and I'll love him till the day I, I die. It wasn't until April 1999 that Tracy finally admitted that she had invented the road rage story. Confused and definitely in denial, she's still playing victim by saying that the attack was self-defence. However, due to the nature of the stab wounds and there were many, it was looking very unlikely. In July 2011, after serving 14 years, she was released back into society. She's changed her appearance. She's dyed her hair black. She's had surgery on her jawline. And she probably wanted to not be recognised. And now you're telling everyone how to recognise her. Yeah. <laughs> Since the time of her release, which was 10 years ago, she's managed to start a new normal life, including new friendships and relationships. And she even got married a couple of years ago. Well, you know, maybe this is a true reformation. Maybe. I hope her new husband knows about her past, though. Do you reckon they spoke about that? It's a pretty big bomb to drop in it. Yeah. Would you tell someone? Yeah, because the guilt would eat me up from the inside out. I mean, I thought it was bad enough telling new dates that I had been married. 
bit different. No, I know, but like same thing. Guilty. I'm gonna like me anymore because I was married. They're not gonna like me anymore because I killed my boyfriend. <laughs> I'm just too honest. It's been over 20 years since Tracy Andrews took away the life of her fiance in a horrible attack. And though her fiance has long gone, the pain she has caused Lee Harvey's mother, sisters, and daughter is not something that will disappear. It's often described as a crime of passion. And I tend not to use that term because I think what we're implying there is that she wasn't in control of her actions. She didn't know what she was doing. This this rage came over her and she couldn't help herself. I think she knew exactly what she was doing. When you stab somebody 42 times, you are deciding to continue doing this. Your arm is gonna be tired. There are gonna be opportunities for you to stop and you decide to keep going. That is prolonged ferocity. That's going on and on and on and on. That's not a momentary flash of anger. That's uncontrollable rage lasting a significant period of time. It's a shocking, shocking thought. That was the story of Tracy Andrews. That was a journey, wasn't it? I feel mm. like we all went on a journey there. We did. Um, Ooh, I feel a bit uncomfortable. It's Yeah, I feel like I need to... And starts making again, to be honest. <laughs> After that one. Next time on Devils in the Dark, with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're looking into the world of the grinder killer, Stephen Port. Make sure to subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. We would love it if you could leave us a review. We love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. <laughs>